Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with Matthias on uh, the outskirts of Washington, D.C. We're broadcasting from Arlington, Virginia. Uh, and we are talking to a distinguished scholar in residence at American University, uh, Dr. Nora Bensahel. Uh, thank you so much for spending the time with us. We it's my pleasure. It. Um, so, so what we want to get into today is, is a lot of questions about force structure uh, in, in the United States military. Um, but before we go there, if you could just take us a little bit through, through your background and interest in, in, in pulling apart these issues, um, what organizations you've worked for in Washington, uh, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm, sure. Um, I've been a military analyst throughout my career. Um, I got a PhD in uh, political science at Stanford, focusing particularly on international security issues. And I went straight from there to the Rand Corporation, where mm -hmm. I spent uh, almost 12 years uh, working on first on issues of military coalitions and alliances and then after the September 11th attacks working a lot on military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I spent uh, about four years after that at the Center for a New American Security here in Washington, a, a smaller think tank focused just on security issues mm. uh, and continued working on those but also started looking at questions of how the U.S. military is prepared for the future and, and how it's transitioning in a time of great strategic change uh, to address the both current but also future uh, threats. That's led to a lot of work on personnel policy mm -hmm. as well as questions of force structure, how the military operates and you know the types of operations it's going to conduct. Uh, and for the last two and a half years, I've been at American University, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of using that as a home base and, and uh, publishing pretty widely on the, the range of issues I just mentioned. Um, one, one topic that's been in the news of late, and I, I think that the, the public is fairly aware of, of this issue, is um, the Marine scandal yeah. with regard to... Uh, basically publishing very graphic images against the consent of women who are in the Marines, uh, huge, massive displays of misogyny and sexism, et cetera, et cetera. Just pretty gross social media abuse, generally speaking. And that's kind of in line with um, some cultural trends that we've seen online, independent of whether or not it's military. But from what I understand in my reading, that has particular implications for the military just because of its structure and the kind of codes that it, it, it supposedly observes, especially at the leadership level. Could you discuss what the Marine scandal is, first and foremost, within the context of the military, and then its implications? Sure. Earlier this year, it was discovered uh, that there were, on a number of social media sites, including some secret groups on Facebook, but not just there, um, that there was a, a group that called itself Marines United. There were also a couple of other incidents with other groups with different names, but we tend to talk about them all as part of the same thing because they were all doing the same thing, um, that mostly involved uh, former but still some currently serving Marines, both in the United States and in uh, the United Kingdom, actually, mm. who were posting photos of uh, female Marines in various stages of undress that were taken without their consent, along with some incredibly misogynist uh, and, in some cases, very violent language. Um, this was uh, exposed, uh, as I said earlier this year, and there's been a real effort by the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the highest uh, serving officer in the Marine Corps, uh, to try to stamp out the behavior and all that. If you go back and look at his responses right afterwards, he didn't necessarily come down so quickly <laughs> when it was initially revealed and took a lot of criticism for that, but subsequently you know, has talked about 
how this was unacceptable behavior and needs to be stamped out within the Marine Corps. In my mind, it is symptomatic of a larger culture problem within the Marine Corps about women serving in the military in particular. Um, none of the services have a great track record on that if you look historically. There has been a lot of resistance to integrating women if you go back to you know, World War I and even as recently as World War II in Vietnam. Um, but the other services, uh, particularly after the 1991 Gulf War, mm -hmm. started incorporating women in more positions. Uh, they were not allowed to include them in what were considered direct combat positions, which mm -hmm. would be you know, frontline combat in any of the services. Um, but they were in more support functions, logistics, intelligence, you know, other things like that mm -hmm. that, are, that are vitally important for a war effort, but not you know, what the military calls the pointy end of the spear. Right. Mm -hmm. That started changing in both the Air Force and the Navy in the uh, mid-1990s. It took much longer for the land forces. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, until 2015, they did not allow women to serve in those frontline positions either. The real problem with that is that the modern wars in Iraq and Afghanistan don't have a front line, mm -hmm. right? You know, the battlefield used to be linear. There was right. a, a place where contact happened and people shot at each other, and then the rear areas tended to be more secure, not completely, but tended to be more secure. That's not true in a counterinsurgency mm -hmm. campaign, where being a truck driver was one of the most dangerous jobs you could have in Iraq or Afghanistan because the weapon of choice of the insurgents were roadside IEDs. Mm -hmm. So. That sort of, the fact that women in these wars were actually serving in the equivalent of frontline positions but not being recognized for it and still being excluded from combat led to a lot of pressure to change that. And in, uh, in early 2013, then Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta said that the re last remaining combat exclusion, that would be that women were not allowed to serve in um, ground combat forces. They were allowed, had been allowed to fly airplanes and be on most ships by that point. Um, that that policy would change, but he gave it a three-year waiting period so mm -hmm. that the services could do experiments and and you know because change like that is yeah. you know very difficult to do overnight. Yeah. What happened with that is that all of the services, especially the army, embraced that. Mm -hmm. And you know, spent that time trying to figure out ways to integrate women effectively, balancing not changing the, the physical standards for those units with enabling women who could meet those qualifications to come in. Um, and in the end, all of the services, that, except for the Marine Corps, made their recommendation to the Secretary of Defense, who at that point was Ash Carter, mm -hmm. um, that they requested what became known as no exceptions, the way that Panetta had set it up that women will be allowed to serve in all positions as of January 1st, 2016. The services have until that date to request an exception to the policy. So the default mm -hmm. changed, right? The default mm -hmm. had been women were excluded. Mm -hmm. right. What the Panetta announcement did was we're going to assume women can be included and you have to prove to us why they can't be, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. of course is this huge, huge right. mind change. Right. right. The Army said no exceptions, the Navy said no exceptions, the Air Force said no exceptions, the Special Forces said no exceptions, and the Marine Corps said, we don't think women should be allowed to serve. And we want an exception because women you know, are, would uh, undermine the cohesion of the unit and are not up to the standards. They based that judgment on a series of exercises and trainings that they did that showed that on average, 
women who were in this test unit did not live up to the standards of their male peers. Well, the male peers had been marine in marine combat units already, mm. and the logic was faulty because there is no such thing as an average woman, right? right. You cannot mm -hmm. use justifying <laughs> keeping them out because yeah. the average woman right. didn't right. make it, right. right? So Ash Carter basically said, I'm, I am not granting you an exception, you the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I go into all of this history because I don't think you can understand what's happened with Marines United without understanding that debate and understanding how culturally resistant the Marine Corps has been to women serving in its ranks. Um, it is the only service that still segregates basic training by gender. Mm -hmm. And there have been a lot of complaints, uh, mm -hmm. largely by some female Marines, that this is inherently unequal, that they are held to lower standards that than men, and that you know, the, by separating them out in basic training, you are basically um, reinforcing that distinction. Yeah, and, un right. and from, from what I understand also, one of the essential aspects of the marine experience is the esprit de corps, the, the, the fighting spirit of the Marine Corps, and by separating, don't you directly compromise and undermine that? Um, yes, the Marine counter to that would be, you know, that, that the esprit de corps is formed in basic training and you need to keep them separate because that's how they're going to learn to be Marines. Mm -hmm. This, again, it's a matter of culture, mm -hmm. it's a matter of tradition, it's a matter of history, and it's how they view themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's the, the same culture that led to you know that that request for an exception that mm -hmm. leads the Marines to still say we still need gender segregated basic training and that is the last thing they will budge on because mm -hmm. because the Marine Corps depends on the esprit de corps boot mm -hmm. camp is the be all and end all mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. what they do because that's how you make a Marine mm -hmm. right? right that would be the last thing they abandon right. Um, that's all of a piece with the culture that even though the people who were involved in the Marines United scandal were not, you know, they were certainly don't represent the majority of Marines. A lot right. of Marines denounced this and said that, you know, that this behavior should never be tolerated. Well, if I understand it correctly is, also, it's it's Marines themselves, some Marines themselves who exposed the scandal initially. If that's I understand right. Correctly. That's right. But but that trend that mm -hmm. you know that that the fact that that was the service that was the only one that requested an exception to women serving is related right. to the misogyny Absolutely. that you saw there. I don't want to say that everybody who believes right. the Marine yeah. Corps should and remain you know should have gender segregated yeah, right. basic training is automatically misogynist. Right. But it is it is a consistent theme that mm -hmm. crosses both. And is it also tied to the to the lack of a swift response too, like the lack of the lack of, a, of an effort to sort of go through the system and root out this problem. That was one of the major criticisms and, yeah. and something that I believe that the, you know, the commandant could have spoken out more directly, more quickly. Now, to his credit, I think he's done a lot since then mm -hmm. um, outside of public view to try to address this um, and that behavior in particular. Um, but, you know, it, it's still it's still something of concern. And, and again, the, the, the incident as bad as it is, also reflects a general culture problem right. that needs to be addressed. And so addressing that behavior and preventing it from happening again, I think mm -hmm. steps are you know, going forward. I can't assess how well they're going or not, mm -hmm. but I know, you know they're, they are doing some things. But that broader problem remains. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the things you've written about is the, is the importance of, of removing 
um, the, the combat exclusion in, in terms of women being able to rise up the ranks in, in all the armed services. And in order to provide some context for that, I was wondering if you could take us back to um, some of the earlier stages of integration in the history of the United States Armed Forces, particularly if you can talk about uh, some of the issues around uh, the integration of the service academies in the 1970s uh, and, and how that came about, what sort of political pressures were at play, uh, and maybe what some of the aftermath of that was, if there was any pushback to it. Sure. I, I want to say up front that you know a, a lo- the reason why I think we need to be integrating women into the military and, and uh you know, seeing them be promoted over time is not just because I think it's the right thing to do to mm-hmm. have gender pluralism. Mm-hmm. It's really about the effectiveness of the military first and foremost, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the military needs the best people it can mm-hmm. find, period, end of story, regardless right. of race, gender, you know, anything, anything <laughs> yeah. right? The military just yeah. needs the most talented Americans that it can find to serve. And so part of what motivates me in, the, in this work, in this research, um, you know, is to try to understand how we can, you know, keep get rid of the barriers that unnecessarily prevent talent from coming in. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. not every woman will succeed in the military. Most women won't be able to meet the combat standards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, very often critics of this will say, well, you know, you just it's just an argument about women's equality and they're going to have quotas for women, that the military mm-hmm. is going to have to become 50% female. And, you know, I don't know a single person who truly genuinely believes that you know the answer is we want to just you know enable the most talented people across our whole population to serve in the military because the military is a really important institution um the integration of the service academies really came about as does a lot of military change honestly from from changes in civilian society. Right. Um, you know, the 1960s were a time of the women's movement, of really sort of a lot of consciousness raising, a lot of uh, advocating for women's rights. And, um, you know, there were a lot of, as part of that, one of the manifestations of that is people were saying, why aren't women allowed to, you know, attend the service academies, which, you know, in exchange for serving your country, which is a very serious commitment, mm-hmm. is a sweet deal financially, right? right. You know, you get, it, it's, all of your expenses are paid, you know, you, you don't go into debt if you mm-hmm. go to one of those service academies. You commit to a career, you know, a certain period of time in the mm-hmm. armed forces, so I don't want to say that these people don't earn this. Right. But there was an argument that that is an, a, a federal, you know, a government opportunity that is available to men that is not available to women. Mm-hmm. And the issue of eventually went to Congress, and Congress mandated that women be allowed to enter the service academies with the, the first female um, entrance starting in the fall of 1976, which made the first graduating class that was gender integrated across all of the academies, the class mm-hmm. of 1980. Mm-hmm. And that had a... a a you know very big cultural effect. Um, it was a huge change at the academies themselves, mm-hmm. um, having women there. And if you talk to women who were part of those first classes, you know they, many of them had really horrendous experiences. Feel mm-hmm. you know people trying to get rid of them, make them feel not welcome, all mm-hmm. sorts of other things like that. Um, but over time, that just became accepted as normal and normalized. And the 
you know, if you go to a place like West Point for the Army or, you know, the Naval Academy for the Navy and, and, and for the Marines, the Air Force Academy, obviously, for the Air Force, um, you know, you're not just getting an education, you're getting training, it being in a military environment that many people credit later on, regardless of gender, as being really essential to their military careers. Obviously, there are ways to become a military officer without that. We have ROTC yeah. programs, you know, and they get military training as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, I think... You know, as women sort of went through West Point, because West Point feeds so much of the officer corps in the mm-hmm. Army, it's up to 50% of the incoming folks come in through the academy. Um, you know, that became a legitimizing thing for, for women that made them more competitive, legitimized their presence in the military, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. The military promotion system is a, is a complicated one, and, you know, the military in general decides who it promotes and who it doesn't. There are some broad parameters that are set by Congress in terms of the numbers of people you can promote and how you do it, but in terms of deciding who actually gets promoted, um, with the exception of the three-star and four-star level where you have to be confirmed by Congress, the military actually is making its own decisions and Mm -hmm. it's made by peers and superiors about who should be promoted. And each of the services has career paths that um, it values more than others in terms of promotion. All of them value serving in combat positions more than support positions because that's where the fighting happens, right? Mm -hmm. So women were at somewhat of a competitive disadvantage in terms of numbers being promoted because while there was a combat exclusion, right, right, they weren't allowed to serve in the pieces of the military that tended to be, you know, be promoted, especially to those highest levels. You know, mm-hmm. being promoted from a you know lieutenant in a very junior rank to you know a major wasn't necessarily the problem for women. A mere mm-hmm. mid-career rank, but you know when you're talking about colonel or mm-hmm. you know any type of general, right. you know those tend to tend to be. There are always exceptions, but mm-hmm. tend to be from the combat specialties mostly. Right. So what you see is there are a lot of women who have done extraordinarily well in these non-combat fields. Um, in, in some cases have taken it, not quite taken over, but you know, are, are incredibly talented people who've done very well and been promoted to some of those positions, but it's within, you know, for example, if they're in intelligence, they get promoted to the intelligence positions, right? In order to get promoted up to, you know, through the infantry in the army or, you know, or the equivalent in another service, you don't get to jump in laterally, you know, when you've had 20 years of service as a lieutenant colonel. You have mm-hmm. to start at the bottom, and you right. work your way up through that. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's going to be a long time before we see women promoted to, you know, ever higher positions in the infantry in the mm-hmm. army, for mm-hmm. example, because they just started, right? right. The first, right. Wi- the first right. women to serve in the infantry are just starting this year, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it takes... On average, 35 years to become a four-star general. I'm making that number up. It right. varies, but yeah. you know, can be 35 up to even 40 in some cases, yeah. right? The first women that we will see from the infantry, right. who you know might be considered to be chief of staff of the army or the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff or whatever it is, you know, that's 40 years from today. Right. So it's going to be a long time um, until you see that. And, and again, because I don't expect that the percentage of women, I'm just going to keep using the infantry as an example, right. but I don't expect the percentage of women in the infantry to be 50-50, um, largely because I don't think as many women will be as interested in 
and as many men, mm -hmm. right? I do think the ones that are interested and qualified should be able to serve and be upwardly mobile. But we're likely to see pretty mm -hmm. small numbers. You know, we're not going to see that many women joining the infantry this year. The reality is the physical demands are really tough. Mm -hmm. The longer you have to prepare for those, mm -hmm. the easier it is, right? You know, it's harder if you just say, if you're, say you're already in, say you're 22 or 23, it's mm -hmm. harder to say, hey, I'm going to get myself in shape and I'm going to pass the test to transfer over into right. the infantry next year. Mm -hmm. It's a lot different if you have a 14-year-old girl out there who says, I want to be an infantry officer, right? Right, and starts going to the gym every day, right. like today, because yeah. that's her goal, and now she sees it as a possibility. Right. right. So, I expect the numbers to go up over time because you know I, I certainly wouldn't have held myself to the physical standards of the combat specialties if I knew I couldn't serve in those combat of specialties. Course. Right. There's no incentive yeah. to do that. I think there will be more over time coming in, but they're still probably going to be small numbers, and you know some of them will be excellent and some of them won't be. So right. you know some of them will will leave earlier. So it's going to be a long time, but I, that to me doesn't matter as much as the people who qualify and who are good at what they do have the opportunity to be promote, promoted based on merit. Now that they're you know in the services is much more of an equal starting field. Right. So one question that that. Your, your, your comment really gives rise to for me is I'm learning a lot of details about the very divisions and operations and standards and mechanisms and all of that in terms of uh, how, how the military actually operates. And you've written extensively about some of the consequences of the bifurcation between military culture and the general American public. Yeah. Um, and how that's impacted our society and its consequences, its implications. Um, you know, that gives rise to questions of, uh, do we, does the general American public actually appreciate the function and role of the military, how it fulfills its duties, um, its place in American society, uh, its relationship to the civilian world? If you could go into some of those details and what you think is most salient and insightful in that regard. We very much appreciate that, just so we can better understand what the blind spots are as, uh, as this trend continues. Sure. Um, I believe that the, the gap between civilian society and the military both ways you know, is, is bigger than any time that it's been in over 40 years. Um, you know, the, the Vietnam War was obviously very controversial. Lots of people protested because there was a draft in place and people were, you know, being called up through the draft and sent to serve in a very unpopular war in Vietnam. And one of the legacies of that was the institution of what's become known as the all-volunteer force, mm -hmm. right? We got rid of the draft and instead we said only people who volunteer. We're not going to force anybody to serve in the military. We're only going to take people who volunteer. Mm -hmm. And in many ways that has been an exceptionally good thing for the military. And, and I want to state that up front. We have, the United States has the most professional and effective fighting force that there is in the world and although I have some concerns about where we're going in the future, I don't fundamentally expect that to change anytime mm -hmm. soon. And a lot of that is because of the quality of people who volunteer, their dedication to what they do, um, and the fact that everybody who joins the military makes a very serious commitment, but they basically want to be there, mm -hmm. right? And that has a huge effect. But there has been a real downside of the all-volunteer force, which I don't think we pay enough attention to, and I don't think we understand enough as a society, and that is that it has led to this divergence of the military from the society that it serves. In Vietnam, 
you know, in some ways the draft proved effective as serving as a check on an unpopular war, mm-hmm. right? Because people didn't think it was worth fighting. You, you know, you always have a recourse at the ballot box. You can right. vote out the president and, right. you know, vote in someone who said he's going to end the war. Um, but the fact that, you know, across the country, if you, you know, were of draft age or if you had a child or relative who was of draft age, mm-hmm. th- there was a chance they were going to go. Of course, it was unequal and people got out of it, but but basically it affected society, right? Mm-hmm. right? And, and that should be the case. It, there should be a link between society and the war that it's, that, yeah. you know, the yeah. wars that they fight. The all-volunteer force has done tremendous, tremendous things, but what it has essentially done, and I don't think we really saw, like understood the effects of this until these recent wars, you know, since September 11th in both Mm -hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan, is it has essentially severed the responsibility of of the citizenry to defend the nation, you know, during times of war. Mm -hmm. And so we could go to war in Afghanistan without calling up people. Right. My own view, I I was... um, you know, across the pen- street from the Pentagon on September 11th. And so, you know, I experienced that mm-hmm. personally and saw the reaction. I th- actually think, this is just my personal view of the world, if for, there had been a military reason to need a draft, if we had, the, the war plan that they had come up with needed people from the draft, of course it wasn't, it wasn't even close. But just the sentiment at the time was that was so clearly understood as an attack on the United States that should a draft have been needed, I actually think that it wouldn't have been unpopular. Yeah. Right. right? I think people yeah. would have signed up and said, yep, got it. Mm-hmm. We got to fight back. Right. Well, we, also, we, we saw that in the fact that so many people volunteered in the immediate aftermath, dropped careers, That's uh, right. completely yeah. changed their courses of life, their lifestyles, et cetera, et cetera, made tremendous sacrifice as a result. No, that's exactly right. But yeah. so, you know, I think that the yeah. idea of a draft could have been supported then. By contrast, I don't believe the war in Iraq right. could right. have gone forward if there had been a draft because you know it was controversial. There were you know I, I'm not making a judgment on whether mm-hmm. the claims were right or wrong. I've mm-hmm. written elsewhere on that, but yeah. it was it was enough of a borderline issue in American society mm-hmm. that if you had a draft for that, my again my own personal view, we'll never know, is yeah. that war would not have happened if right. you had had right. to draft people, right? right? Well, and that's an important check, mm-hmm. right? Having people at stake is a, you know, having individual Americans' lives at stake in these wars is really important because, frankly, it's just too easy to send other people's kids and relatives into harm's way, right. you know, to protect the nation. And that is largely what we've seen in these wars, right? The people who, um, you know, don't have any connection to the military have not made a real contribution to the right. wars. I mean, they read the news and sometimes, you know, they often say thank you right. for your thank service, you for your service. Yeah. which most veterans don't uh, don't like or most service people don't like. I mean, they, they it's better, they understand it's a lot, it's genuine and that it's yeah. a lot better than what happened in Vietnam, mm-hmm. obviously. But it, it, you know, it masks an understanding of what they actually do. It's, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of folks feel that it's just generally right. a knee-jerk thing rather yeah. than a true understanding Absolutely. of what they've done. Um, I've made them sound ungrateful, and I don't mean to, but it's 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 I just too it's, easy yeah, to say yeah. to say is, thank yeah. you for your service right. and then not think about it right. again. Uh, yeah. Right. And what we've seen is that the in the demographics of the military, recruiting those who volunteer to go in has become increasingly restricted 
geographically, we way over recruit from uh, the south and from rural areas. So we, the military is not representing the geographic diversity of this country. We do actually a lot better on uh, certainly on race and ethnic diversity, although that skewed, that's correlated somewhat with the yeah. geography. But you know, we're it, we're actually more diverse. The military is more diverse on race than it is by geography. If you look at it, wow. <laughs> it in some ways. Wow. Um, and what, what's particularly concerning, I think, is that the vast majority of the people who volunteer to serve in the military have a relative who has served in the military. Mm-hmm. The most recent data I saw on this, I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but mm-hmm. the order of magnitude is right, is that about a quarter of the people coming into the military, you know, the 18 to 24-year-olds and you know, in that range, a quarter of them have a parent who has served in the military. And depending on the service, the number is somewhere between 70 and 80% have a family member who has served. Now, some of that is still, you know, grandparents and and great-grandparents. I don't think great-grandparents count. Some of that is still World War II and Korea and Mm -hmm. and Vietnam because Mm -hmm. of the draft. But, you know, basically what we are doing, the recruiting patterns of the people who are volunteering to come in Mm -hmm. are all people who have virtually all people who have a family connection to the military Mm -hmm. and are increasingly not representative of the rest of society in terms of where they live. Right. Mm -hmm. In in what ways is that affecting our capacity to to make sure the the, the force is at its its highest capacities, particularly in regard to some of the um, the issues that uh, that are going to pertain to the warfare of the future? Um, Cyber warfare comes to mind. how is how is this trend affecting our capacity to pull broadly from the population? What effect does this does this geographical focus um, have on, on the uh, on the culture of the military as well? I think it's a real problem again because I start from the premise that I want the military to have the best talent in every way that yeah. the country has to offer. And if the vast majority of the people who are considering serving in the military are people who are related to someone or know someone that becomes self-reinforcing, right? Mm-hmm. right? And that means that the rest of the population, we know going a long time back, even before the statistics I just mentioned, mm-hmm. that you know, what's known as propensity to serve, are you likely right. to volunteer, is fundamentally affected by knowing someone in the military. That makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can talk to someone about it. It's mm-hmm. not just you know, something yeah. you came up with in your head and imagined, right? right? Yeah. But we, we now, in effect, are creating... You know, this is a controversial term, but almost a warrior caste, right? Yeah. It's the same people mm-hmm. over generations doing this. Yeah. That means that the rest of society, people don't even think about going into mm. the military. Well, mm-hmm. you know, and and particularly people at some of the elite civilian universities, you know, don't even consider military mm-hmm. service. I was talking to someone who's an ROTC cadet uh, the other day who is a rising senior, and his friends still ask him how that Navy thing is going. I mean, you know, and this, yeah. is, and this is at a, yeah. an, an Ivy-caliber school. And that's borderline insulting. Yeah. Yeah, he's very, he gets very frustrated by that, right? Because they're his friends, and right. they can't even... They can't even get that right. They can't even get that right. I mean, again, it's just a a small little anecdote. Right, but it's representative. And I I mean, so I I want you to continue in your explanation, but I would also like you to consider the question of the the so-called permanent war footing and whether or not there's an interrelation between that social construct and the fact that 
we are developing a warrior caste and that it divorces the rest of our civil society from the realities that these people have to confront when we decide almost frivolously in some instances that we need to send them into some kind of theater of combat. Yeah, I wouldn't say we do it frivolously, but I do think that the the you know barriers to entry are mm-hmm. lower and sometimes okay. too low. Okay. Um, the, the question of are we in a perpetual war, I actually think is somewhat of a separate question. I think that okay. has more to do with the kinds of threats and enemies that the United States faces at the moment. Yeah. Um, if you're dealing with you know terrorists and insurgents, if you're dealing with the likes of ISIS, for mm-hmm. example, um, there is no single battlefield. There is no day the battle right. starts and the battle ends and ISIS goes away. Right. right? You know, extremist terrorism, you know, ISIS didn't used to exist. It used to be Al-Qaeda central. Mm-hmm. Then it morphed. We dealt with Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Mm-hmm. ISIS is now an offshoot of Al-Qaeda yeah. in Iraq. There will be a successor. We could defeat yeah. ISIS. There will be a successor to ISIS. This is a long-term problem right. for the West and you know as a whole in addition mm-hmm. for the United States. And so I think we are going to need to keep addressing that threat. Mm-hmm. There may right. be other threats. We are now seeing the you know return of great state power competition. Mm-hmm. We could talk about all of that. Yeah. But I do think we're going to have some type of special operations counterterrorism profile for a very long time to mm-hmm. come because of the nature of that threat. Mm-hmm. What I would say is the 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 fact that the you know the military is such a small and separate segment of society now, it's dangerous both for the military and for the nation as a mm-hmm. whole. It's dangerous because both sides, both the military and the civilians who look at them, may come to see the military as superior. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Civilians, you know, who know nothing about the military, hold the military in extremely high regard. Mm-hmm. And again, that's so much better. I mean, than it was during Vietnam, obviously. Right. But they simultaneously don't know anything about right. it. Right. So there's this reverence, but a complete lack of understanding. That's why I mentioned thank you for your service mm-hmm. sometimes great, right. because it's the reverence part, but not the actual empathy, understanding right. of what, not even empathy, but mm-hmm. not knowledge, knowledge of what that yeah. entails. Mm-hmm. It's, a problem uh, for, mm-hmm. and the, it's a problem for the military because they, there is, can be a tendency to start believing that they are separate and superior to the rest of society too. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem though, is for the nation as a whole, for the civilians, because it becomes simply just too easy to decide as a civilian with no contact to the military or a voter trying to decide, you know, who to support as a candidate, you know, to send our sons and daughters into harm's way if you have no stake in it and you know you will have no stake in it. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not going to remember the numbers off the top of my head, but um, there was a poll that was done in uh, 2015, about a month after the Paris terrorist attacks, you know, where the mm-hmm. nightclub was bombed. So, the, you know, the idea of terrorism and ISIS was very much in the news and had been in the news mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. And the first survey question was, you know, do you support, you know, sending force against ISIS? I don't remember how, exactly how it was yeah. questioned, but, you know, do you basically support military's, you know, action against ISIS in response? And the number was something like 60-something percent. I mean, it was a pretty high number. Mm-hmm. The next question, and, and this was among the age of people who, you know, it was millennials. Would you, the whole survey was millennials. The first question was, it was the same sample, then said, would you be willing to fight them? And it wasn't quite the same number, but it was only a few percentage points lower. I said no. 
Yeah. So wow. you can't have, I mean, it's one survey, but it, right. it illustrates the problem, right? You, it's not, it, it is not good for the nation as a whole, for our citizenry and for the basic, you know, fundamental bargain of citizenship that, you know, in this, you know, example, yeah. to have the majority of people say, we should fight the war, but I am not willing to fight it. Right. Right. That, that brings up a question that, that, that attaches to the concept of war footing as you describe it. So as you discuss, and I think as a lot of people know, we're likely to face this counterterrorism profile for the foreseeable future. I mean, decades, right? Yep. And one of, one of the things during the Obama administration um, that they tried to do, um, particularly in the beginning of the second term, was to take us off a war footing. So they, they said, we're going to be continuing to fight, um, you know, you know, Al-Qaeda and associated forces, or, or each iteration of forces that comes after Al-Qaeda and after ISIS. Um, but, but Obama's argument was, um, we, we can't have a society that is permanently engaged in war. Um, now, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that sort of, sort of grand philosophical premise, almost, like that, that, that large-scale premise. Um, and, I, and I'd be interested to know, do you think the notion uh, of downgrading the level at which we, per, we perceive the war, um, the, 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 the breadth of the war, um, would have an effect on the way civilians perceive of sending soldiers to war? So mm-hmm. the question is this, if, if we were to, to follow Obama's prescription and downgrade, um, downgrade ourselves from a level of war that is, that is uh, you know, permanent and total war to something where we're fighting war on the margins, where we're sending you know, drones and special operations out to have a light footprint, um, particularly in the Middle East, um, do you think that would add, add affect negatively the, the ongoing trend among civilians um, in, in not taking into account some of these issues? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't really know in concrete terms what taking this awful war footing <laughs> right. really meant. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I do think there is something about the mentality yeah. that matters and that, you know, what we are doing now with ISIS is not the same as mm-hmm. what we were doing, you know, in Afghanistan right after September 11th and what we were doing in Iraq for many years. And, mm-hmm. and my guess is that rhetoric is more tied to that, that when, especially when U.S. troops withdrew mm-hmm. from Iraq in 2011, yeah. That you know he wanted to make clear, especially because that was you know a huge campaign issue for him. Yeah, right? He right, ran yeah. on ending the war in, Af- in, in excuse yeah. me in Iraq. Um, I think he wanted to make a very clear break with that. Mm-hmm. And it is true that what you know, even though we you know we went down to zero troops in Iraq, we now have yeah. uh, you know several thousand back helping support the mm-hmm. fight against ISIS. It is true we are in a very different phase, very different types of operations. Um, but I do think it's also really important that the American people understand that there are troops in harm's way, mm-hmm. that people are, you know, not in the numbers because we, the, the environment is different and we have fewer people there, um, but that we are taking casualties. People are coming home, you know, wounded and in coffins from these military operations. And I think every citizen has a responsibility, you know, to be aware of that mm-hmm. and to, you know, make their preferences known in the voting booth, mm-hmm. of whether they support that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't see as much of a concrete shift okay. in how we've prosecuted the wars recently. It, you know that right. I, I don't see a war footing that we were on one day and we suddenly mm-hmm. became off okay. another okay. day. Mm-hmm. Does 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 um, 
does the increased focus on on special operations affect that though? Because I, oh I, yes, <laughs> if, you, if you can elaborate upon that. So so the increased focus on a light footprint. I mean I mean how does that how does yeah that affect the, the use of big large scale conventional military forces, big infantry yeah. units, mm-hmm. big marine units, um, is not something that is politically palatable to. Um, you know, has not wasn't to President Obama, does not seem to be to President Trump either, yeah. um, and is not um, helpful in the countries where we think there's a problem, right. like Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. and, and all of that today. Yeah. So it's 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 two things going on at once. Mm-hmm. Partially, the kind of long-term counterterror operations that we're talking about do naturally lend themselves to special operations forces. Mm-hmm. Okay. So from a pure military perspective, you know, for direct action, conducting a raid, going and finding and killing a terrorist, um, the ways that you do that are through drones, standoff, right? Mm, Killing individuals, but through standoff technology, or by going and getting the bad guy, Mm. which requires people who are trained to do that, which is usually special operations forces better trained at that than Mm. others. That's one of their specialties. Right. there are thing, other things that we do militarily to support those operations, in particular helping train local forces to address them. And, mm-hmm. and for those, you do want mm-hmm. other forces than special operations forces, although they are capable of that. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they are specially trained for that. There, that's a much longer story. There's so much demand on special forces, you right. tend to rely on others to do a lot of the training. Right. Um, there's been some criticism that that's a bad thing, but you know, I'll just leave that there. We, we are using conventional forces to do other things like training, but we're not using them you know, in packets of 20,000 people in a division all mm-hmm. at once. Right? We're right. sending a few thousand at a time to do that. So militarily, for those kinds of problems, special forces are... A, you know yeah. the right tool for most of them, mm-hmm. but boy, is it politically handy? Yeah. Also, it, that the types of forces which are best suited for what we're doing don't announce where they're going. Right. It doesn't yeah. show up in the newspapers here or in the place where they go, mm-hmm. until, unless in, in an aftermath of a raid like the Bin Laden raid, for mm-hmm. example. Most of these never get press attention, either in the United States or in the country where these operations right. occur. Right. And and you know I. In, in a lot of talks that I gave, bef- you know, before the 2016 election, said, you know, whoever the president is for the next, you know, 10 years, because of some of the impact of the frustrations in Iraq and Afghanistan, the president, whoever he or she is, and I mm-hmm. still believe this, is going to still face very strong incentives to use special operations forces, not just because they happen to be well suited from a purely military perspective, mm-hmm. but also because they can be used quietly, and really, most people don't know about that. Yeah, right. And yeah. so there's very little political cost in using right. them, too. Um, spe- speaking of uh, political matters, one thing that we've seen as a result of the transition into the new administration is an increase, a dramatic increase, in the prominence of the military in civilian, in ordinarily, customarily civilian roles of government. And for, for a lot of people, that's reassuring just given the profile of the incoming president and the kind of campaign that he ran as a kind of stabilizing presence, so to speak. Um, What are some of the consequences of that? What are some of the concerns that people should be having that they don't around that issue just because we fail to understand enough about the military today? And I think specifically back to some critiques about 
that, that you've made, um, I'm thinking specifically in the review of, uh, I think, the movie War Machine, <laughs> yeah. in which, you, in which you, you, you use the story to kind of uh, to illustrate what some of the weaknesses of military leadership were, what some of just the nature of the military exper- experience at a leadership level was. Can, can you kind of delve into some of those consequences and how that manifests itself in government? It's a great question, and I think that there are two issues that come to my mind about the number of generals that have been appointed in this administration. And, and this is has nothing to do with the, the characteristics of the individual men in these positions. It is about the you know num- having that many retired generals uh, you know in traditionally civilian positions. Um, first, I think that there is an issue about civilian control over the military. That is the one of the, you know, to put on my political science 101 hat, right? Civilian control of the military is one of the fundamental principles of democracy, right? Because otherwise the military can, you know, it has a monopoly on the use of force within the state. Mm-hmm. Militaries tend to create coups. They change leaders non-democratically, right? Mm-hmm. So civilian control and the fact that the military obeys civilian orders is fundamental to our democracy. Now, I don't think that appointing, you know, this many retired generals directly threatens that. I don't mm-hmm. think that there is a worry about a military coup, for example. Mm-hmm. But I do think it undermines the principle I do think that the, um, you know, you are losing out on, and this gets me to my, to my second point, which is my bigger concern is about the lack of diversity among the thinking patterns of the people who are at these levels, right? It is not good to have people of the same background of anything, mm-hmm. no matter what it is mm-hmm. in your inner circle, right? You right. want diverse perspectives. There's all sorts of research about how diverse groups, whatever you want to measure diversity on, it's not just race and gender and, mm-hmm. and those things we traditionally think of as diversity. It's yeah. it's background, it's upbringing, it's you know, mm-hmm. how you think, where right. you were educated, right? The, <laughs> the, the Supreme Court is a, is a salient example just in it totally other way like all Harvard and Yale right (laughs) Right. Um, so you know the fact that so many people in the inner circle come from the same environment I find troubling for decision making Mm -hmm. right but I think that the fact that they come from the military is is particularly problematic in terms of the quality of the overall decision making again I'm not I think that you know very highly of many of these people Mm -hmm. as individuals but they have spent their entire lives in an organization that does not resemble the civilian organizations that they are in at the moment. Um, you know, they have to, when they are in the military, be non-political, at least in terms of, you know, talking about candidates and so on. I mean, they're all entitled to vote, mm-hmm. obviously, but, you know, you are not allowed to, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the law that governs the military, you cannot contradict the commander-in-chief. You know, insulting the commander-in-chief is a crime that is punishable by military law, mm-hmm. right? And and there are very good reasons for that. But then you take these people who have achieved great success in that world, and spent, I don't know how many years General Kelly spent in the military off the top of my head, but I'm going to say it's on the you know na- mm. range of 40, right? Right. And now you put someone like that who may have been extraordinary in the military in a fundamentally political position to deal with people from diverse backgrounds with political interests, you know, with lobbying and, you know, you know the, the, the shark tank that is, you mm-hmm. know, Washington, D.C. politics. Right? It, it concerns me that 
you have a lot of people from that one background that is not from this world at all mm-hmm. that are in key civilian decision-making positions. Right. Um, do, what is your take? I mean, the, the general commentary has been that, that uh, General John Kelly's skills will transfer nicely to this White House because it's in need of, of a sort of more rigid military discipline. Um, and and, and could, I, could I just yeah. tack on on that? Because if you, if you read kind of some, some analysis of the way that he's taken to the role and some of the controls that he's implemented, in reading the review, in reading your review of War Machine, I mean, there's a direct, there are direct parallels between some of the perils that um, uh, military leadership faced in the satirical movie, just in terms of control of the flow of information, groupthink, the insularity of, 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 uh, of basically the highest rank of decision-making in the country, that you see in the way that John Kelly has approached his new role as chief of staff. Do you think that's accurate, and do you think that... What do you what do you think the the the, the consequences of that are? Um, just on that point in particular, I mean, yes, the movie was a satire and a severe satire, right. but but there is truth right. in that satire, right? In that it is difficult for senior military folks to get true information about what is going on because mm-hmm. you know the, the staffs mm-hmm. end up telling them what they mm-hmm. want to hear, mm-hmm. um, and they have to. It's really hard for them. They have to go out of their way to find out disconfirming information so some of that bubble mm-hmm. you know is is natural as I said that movie was you know quite a satire and yeah. took it to extraordinary lengths but there is a kernel of it of truth of a problem in there um, you know how is how is General Kelly gonna do I don't know from all you know outside appearances he seems to have you know maintained you know put in place a bit more order and structure than there had been mm-hmm. um, but I read a headline today that you know Trump uh, excuse me that Kelly is really frustrated that you know he can't impose more order I mean it, it strikes me that yes he can probably impose a lot more order on the staff but you have a commander-in-chief who is not known for order Mm-hmm. Right, he is the anti-order. Right, right. He d- issues, uh, you know, decrees over Twitter and yeah. pushes back and doesn't always listen to the advice of his advisors. Now, you know, he's allowed to do that. Yeah. But, you know, I think that any hopes that General Kelly will institute a disciplined, you know, perfectly working White House process like we've seen in previous administrations is unlikely because this isn't the, the same kind of president. Mm-hmm. Right. I. Um, I think one of the hopes is that, that at least he can control some of the factionalism within within the White House. Um, but I, I actually I wanted to ask you about, uh, just to, to pivot to a, a new area for a second here, um, a minute ago you were talking about the necessity of, of using um, uh, special ops forces um, in, in the Middle East region, right? And uh, a couple of years ago you had written, around I think it's, it was 2012, you had written about um, the Obama administration's pivot to Asia and the the necessity you said of using ground forces in the Middle East such that uh, such that naval and air forces can really be focused in Asia and, and on that strategic theater now needless to say a lot a lot has changed yeah. in, in the years since you wrote uh, since you wrote that but um, to update that um, my question would be um, does the necessity of using special ops allow the military to free up some of those uh, some of those resources that you discussed to, to move them towards that uh, Asia-Pacific focus. And if that Asia-Pacific focus is still current, um, given that you, you, you conducted extensive analysis of the policy switch at the time, I'm sure that you consider its implications strategically moving forward. Right. Um, what do you think the consequences of our 
essentially uh, our abortion of that effort in a lot of ways? Um, or is that even accurate to yeah, say that I, it I has think, been aborted? Look, I think the strategic environment has changed a lot since then. And, and I still believe the, the analysis that went into this announced policy change of this pivot to Asia is still right. I mean, over the long term, the locus of U.S. interest is inextricably shifting to Asia. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean military. In fact, I think military is the least of that. Right. But, but economic in particular, right. mm-hmm. demographically, politically, you know, the with the growing population and the growing financial power of Asia, you know, it, the United States is going to, you know, be increasingly concerned about what happens in the Pacific. Our interests mm-hmm. are going to, our, our, you know, span of attention is going to shift there. Um, but that's a long-term trend. What's happened since then in the world of great power politics, more than what's going on in special operations, you know, Middle East might not just be Middle East, you know, it's in the Middle East today, um, you know, Mm -hmm. there's starting to be talk about might we send troops to deal with ISIS-related groups in the Philippines, so, you Mm -hmm. know, might not stay in the Middle East, today in the Middle East, might not stay in the Middle East. Um, What happened in 2014 was that, you know, Russia came back as a great power or, you know, depending on your view, you know, Woke us from our woke us from our slumber and reminded us that they'd been a great power all along when they annexed Crimea and invaded yeah. Ukraine, right? So I think that right there sort of ended the idea of any sort of even you know on the policy relevant time frame, like as people in Washington like to say, mm-hmm. of you know, Europe is now back as a region of of concern for the United States mm-hmm. in now both political, economic, and military. Mm-hmm. interests. So the real challenge for the United States going forward to me is now not defined by region mm-hmm. in, in the security realm. I mean, right. this mm-hmm. all has trade implications and international economic implications. It has lots and lots of those. I don't study those, so I'm not going to talk about those, but right. those are huge. But in the security and national mm-hmm. defense realm, what that means is we basically thought we had, Europe had kind of gone away Mm-hmm. Right, and we were hoping that the Middle East would be short to midterm problems, and that mm-hmm. Asia would be long term problems. I'm oversimplifying, right? right. Um, but that's not where we are anymore, right? There are now three regions that demand U.S. attention, or, or you know, that have dynamics which threaten traditionally defined U.S. national security interests. And so the challenge for the nation is how do you manage all of that? The challenge for the military, in particular, that comes out of that is. You know, you have to be preparing, and I, I'll go right back to where we started, which is good because I need to wrap uh, in a few moments. Um, you know, you have a military that is responsible for preparing for the full range of contingencies it might be asked to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the special forces are going to continue to do special forcey things. You know, they're going to continue right. doing raids and all that. Um, but we don't know. You know, there's going, there might be other types of insurgencies, counterterror operations that are going to require larger scale ground forces, maybe not of the size of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we have now seen the advent of what many people are calling gray zone conflicts, which you know are conflicts that don't look like traditional conflicts but have some irregular elements. Um, and we know from from you know the recent wars that any wars we fight in the future are going to have some elements of what we had considered irregular, you know, insurgents, roadside bombs, even if we're doing what look like conventional military operations. So how do you prepare for a future where that is something you may be asked to do? 
with what I would argue is a still a very unlikely scenario, but slightly more likely than it used to be. And in any case, the missions that the military gets paid to worry about, no matter how low probability they are, which is what if someone directly threatens the United States and we have to respond, right? It's really hard to drum up a scenario in your head today that would do that, but you know, I could spend not too long and come up with one, right? <laughs> yeah. And again, I, I don't think that that's the most likely thing that's mm -hmm. gonna happen. I actually don't think it's likely to happen, but I want the military to be ready to deal with that, any mm -hmm. type of existential national threat. So if you're the military, how do you prepare for all of that at once, right? right. That's the challenge. Right. And it's a, it's a really difficult one that the service chiefs are, are, are wrestling with and, and trying to deal with. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's why I said the future security environment is very much unsettled. We don't know what kind of adversary we might be facing in the future. We don't know yeah. how they're going to come at us. And we don't know the, exactly the right way to, you know, to address them. We've got to be ready for a whole lot of things. Again, even if they are extremely low probabilities, that's a pretty big challenge for the military. I, uh, I, I know you need to wrap momentarily, but to, to tie a few issues together that we spoke about, we're talking about some, some long-range issues, and, and we know you have expertise in personnel. And uh, There was an article that you wrote where you, you compared preparing for a cyber war uh, to, to um, civil defense uh, you know, during the Cold War. And, and so what I'd ask is, is, what issues should we be concerned about, about the next type of war that's coming along? I mean, how, how prepared is the U.S. military right now, and, and how do we better prepare in terms of personnel uh, and, and just general civilian awareness of what that war is going to be, because that's going to be a war that really affects some of our, our critical infrastructure in this country. Well, it depends what you mean by war, right? right. If it involves other countries' military forces, then we're in the realm of what I was just talking about, right. which is traditional threats and the use of military force. Um, but something that you know, we are very vulnerable as an you know as a country, you know, by the all the iPhones we have in our pockets, right. right? The possibility that someone who wants to do damage to the United States, whether it's you know a nation state or it's a group of hackers or whatever it is chooses to bypass war altogether mm -hmm. and take down our power grid and take or take down our you know air, air traffic control system or you know call into question our entire banking system by mm -hmm. hacking into various banks right is that war it's n not traditionally be considered war because the only way to reach into a society in the past was through military force, right? Mm -hmm. You had to invade to be mm -hmm. able to do that. You don't have to do that anymore. Um, that's not the military's job. The military doesn't have a direct role in what goes on within the territory of the United States, with the exception of the National Guard that can be mobilized in case of emergency. But, you know, you know that's the Department of Homeland Security, but they don't have forces in the same way. And anything that's done at scale will probably require the support of U.S. military forces, if only because the civilian agencies aren't going to have the capacity. Mm -hmm. But is that war? How do we think about retaliation? Right? You know, yeah. are, are we actually going to, you know, use kinetic force, things that go boom against an attack that happened in the cyber realm and maybe didn't kill anyone here? Right. We don't even begin to know the answers to those questions. Right. We are in a very new age. Um, you know, I would just say that, and you know, I believe that the military budget needs to be where it is. We actually probably, for a variety of reasons, need to be spending a bit more on mm -hmm. our military forces than we do for a variety of reasons. Um, but you know, we do spend a lot of money on our military. That's not protecting us from any of the types of things I was just talking about. Right. Right. We also need to be thinking about that 
and that's not something that military force is a good solution to. So those are the kinds of problems that keep people in Washington awake at night as we're thinking of what you know conflict and protecting the nation in its broadest sense may mean in the future. Right. Uh, we just we want to thank you for for sharing your time uh, and your expertise on all of this these issues. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much. And thank you for welcoming us in your home as well. It's oh, you're welcome. You. Thank, you. <laughs> thank you for coming here to make it easier for me. <laughs>